Good morning, church. As the kids are making their way to their classes, if you've got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, please turn in them to Acts chapter 6 this morning as we continue our study through the book of Acts. Here's the church. Here's the steeple. Open it up and see all the people. How many of you remember saying that and being taught that as a kid? The simple, innocent, if not perhaps naively idyllic way of thinking about the church. And as children, it would put a smile on our face to think of a building filled with joy-filled people loving one another, serving one another, and just dancing around in joy. But what they didn't tell us is that they weren't dancing. They were wrestling. (laughs) But seriously, you put people together, even people who have the regenerated spirit in them, for long enough, there will be conflict. It happens in the best of marriages. It happens in the best of churches. It happens in good, healthy, gospel-advancing churches like this first church in Jerusalem that we've been reading about in the book of Acts. Up to this point, what, we, what have we seen from this church Jesus has passed them a baton, their mission, go and be my, my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And they're fulfilling that. The gospel is advancing. It's going out on the streets of Jerusalem, even in the midst of much opposition. And, and they've been unified through all of that. We read in Acts chapter 2 that Luke told us that they were all together and had all things in common. And we're told that day by day they were breaking bread in one another's homes. In chapter 4, he he said that the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And that great grace was upon them all. Things are going well. Yes, they're facing opposition, they're facing persecution for the gospel, but they're facing it together. They're unified, and they're growing in the Lord, and then they're not. Arguments, squabbles, disagreements, division, and disunity. What will happen? What will the Lord do? What will the apostles do? What will the people do? And how will they address this so that they can get back to the mission of advancing the gospel to the nations and being witnesses for Jesus? Let's find out as we read in Acts chapter 6, the first seven verses. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. 
And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip and Prochorus and Nicanor and Timon and Parmenas and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you so much for this book that we hold in our hands. We thank you that it is your very breath. We thank you that we can trust it and know it to be your very breath. And we ask, Father, that through your Spirit you would now use your word and plant it on our hearts, not just so that we would learn more about it, but so that, so that corporately as a church, Father, we might be changed by it so that we can be unified and together so that the gospel could be advanced through us to the nations. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I think it's interesting that this brief story of conflict in the very first church is bookended by two statements about the fact that they are growing. In verse 1, it says, Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, and then at the end of verse 7, the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. With verse 1, we're kind of set up to be surprised by this conflict that ensues. But then in verse 7, we, we all let out a collective sigh of relief. Phew! That was close. Dodged a bullet there. Because the concluding statement there in verse 7 could just as easily been, and the ministry of the word of God was halted, and the number of disciples dwindled greatly in Jerusalem, and the priests were successful in disbanding and dissolving this group of Christ followers. Game over. End of story. But that's not how, how it ends. Verse 7 instead reads, The word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. But don't mess, miss the fact that the context for the conflict that we're going to see in this first church, the context is the advancement of the gospel. It's going forward. The gospel is advancing. The church is growing. Things were hard, but the mission was being fulfilled. As we've read up to this point, the gospel was being proclaimed boldly. Opposition was being faced courageously. Sin in the ranks of the church was being addressed openly. And new believers were being added to their number daily. Things were going well. And then the people in the church under the steeple started wrestling. 
church, just because things are going well doesn't mean that we're immune to this sort of internal squabbling. And things are going well at New Branch right now. By God's grace, the elder, in the elders' estimation, we are as healthy as we've ever been as a church. By God's grace, we are growing both in number and in maturity and in the sweetness of our fellowship. There is a sweetness to our fellowship. Like, like people hang around and talk for a long time instead of running to their cars to get away from one another. There's a sweetness to our fellowship that is encouraging and refreshing to our souls but if disunity and conflict can enter the, the gates of the, the church in Jerusalem with all that it had going on and the unity that they had, breaking bread in their homes day after day, being of one accord, then certainly it can potentially enter our ranks as well. So let's pay attention to what happened here and how it was addressed. What was the cause of the conflict in this church? And what did they do to address it? I think we can identify four broad categories of internal struggle, internal challenges that this first church was facing. First, there were legitimate needs that were being unmet in that church. We're told in verse 1, in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. We'll talk about these two groups in just a moment. But first, let us see that there was a group of people, a, a group of widows nonetheless, that were being neglected in the daily distribution. That daily distribution, I believe, is a reference to the daily distribution of food. Because as we'll see in verse 2, it's referenced as serving tables. But I also think that this is, at least in part, what Luke was talking about at the end of chapter 4 when he said there was not a needy person among them. Why? Because all of them were bringing the proceeds of what they had sold. They were bringing it to the apostles, and we're told at the end of chapter 4 that the apostles distributed to each as any had need. And so certainly this was a distribution of food, but perhaps it was also a distribution of resources, money, benevolence, uh, so to speak, where, where, where the least of them, including their, their widows, would come and, and receive not just food, but resources with which to buy food and other necessary things. And so apparently there was a group within the church, a, 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 a not, not an insignificant number of them, a, a whole group of them, these Hellenist widows, who were being overlooked. They were being neglected. They weren't getting the food they needed. They weren't getting the resources they needed to buy food and other needed items. And what we learn from this is that when legitimate needs in the church, in the body of Christ, go unmet, there is potential for hurt feelings, misunderstandings, and conflict. But apparently this was not just a food problem. This was a unity problem. This was a heart problem there in the first church. And that's the second category of internal difficulties facing this church. It also included disunity and division specifically because of their differences. They faced disunity and division because of how they handled their differences. We're told that a complaint by the Hellenist arose against the 
Hebrews. The Hellenists were the Greek-speaking Jews. The Hebrews were the Hebrew-speaking Jews. So why do we have one group of believers in the church that are speaking Greek and one group that is speaking Hebrew? Well, the Greek-speaking Jews apparently lived in another part of the Roman Empire. And they had traveled from wherever they lived to Jerusalem to celebrate Pentecost, as we read about in chapter 2. But while they're there celebrating the Feast of Weeks, which is what they called Pentecost, God interrupted their life with the gospel. They heard the gospel on the streets of Jerusalem, and they were converted. And as they were converted, now they're now baby Christians, just like the Hebrew-speaking Jews. They're all baby Christians now. All of the folks in the church were baby Christians at this point. But while the Hebrew-speaking baby Christians were insiders from within Jerusalem, within Palestine, the Greek-speaking new believers were outsiders from outside Palestine. And historians tell us that while they didn't necessarily hate each other, they also weren't very cordial with one another either. Just because these two groups of people had now responded in faith to the gospel and had now put on Christ didn't mean that automatically their prejudices and preconceptions about one another were automatically erased. And so these Greek-speaking outsiders brought a complaint against the Hebrew-speaking insiders. They pointed the finger at them and they blamed them for the neglect of their own widows. Now, maybe they were right. Maybe it was their fault. Maybe it was intentional on the part of the Hebrew-speaking converts. We don't know. Or maybe it was unintentional, and there was some other reason why their widows were being neglected. But because in their eyes, those Hebrew-speaking folks could do no right, they made for easy targets. And so they blamed them. They leveled the blame at them. We don't know exactly whether or not they were right or not, but regardless, it doesn't really matter. The disunity and the division that resulted was palpable in the early church. And the reality is when we highlight our differences over against what unites us, we create a rich soil where division and disunity can grow. When we highlight or find our identity in our differences, whatever it is, our differences in age, our differences in race, our differences in socioeconomic status, our difference in our preferences of what we like or don't like, our differences in a number of, of matters that, that just don't matter, our differences in, in whether or not we're a, we're a truck owner or a car owner, our differences in whether we're a Georgia fan or a tech fan, our differences in whether or not the toilet paper should come from the top or from the bottom... When we highlight the things that are different about us and find our identity in those things over against the blood-bought unity that we have in Jesus Christ through the gospel, we create soil in which division and disunity can and ultimately will grow. That's what they did. It was their widows they were concerned about. Thirdly, as the church began to address these problems, they quickly realized that they also had another problem. They had volunteer problems. They had a labor shortage. 
and they had a division of labor problem. They needed more volunteers, and they needed the right volunteers doing the right things. The apostles had their hands full with the ministry of the word and prayer. And if they focused their energies instead on serving the tables and the daily distribution of food, then the ministry of the word and prayer would be sacrificed. And so there was a need for more servants, but there was also a need for a strategic division of labor as to who would be responsible for what. But don't miss the fact that if they didn't solve the unity problem, if they didn't solve that heart problem, then this division of labor solution itself that they instituted would itself potentially spark further division. Why isn't Peter serving my table? Peter's always served my table. Who's this Stephen guy? And who's Nakanor? And do the, do the apostles now think that they're better than the rest of us? Is serving tables beneath them now? And so there was the potential here, if they didn't solve the problem, to create even more conflict and division. And then fourthly, they were having problems managing people while advancing the gospel. Remember, the gospel was advancing. Verse 1 and verse 7 tell us that the number of disciples was increasing and multiplying even. And these verses in between, verses 1 and 7, represent a pause, not just here, but a pause in the grand narrative of the book of Acts. The book of Acts is all about the gospel advancing to the nations, but what we have here is this pause in the action. And this pause in the action shows us that church health and managing the flock and ensuring that the management of the flock, the flock is operating and functioning in a healthy manner, is critical to missional effectiveness. Both of those are important, and we wrongly pit one over the other. But the reality is that missional effectiveness is dependent on managing the flock in a healthy and organized manner. And so, this was not just a, that the fact that they had some hungry people in the church that were being overlooked when they handed out food on a daily basis. This was causing disunity and division and had the potential to negatively affect the advancement of the gospel. When I think about a church trying to manage people and the functioning and, and, and the, the healthy operation of the church while also remaining committed to advancing the gospel in its context, I think about us. I think about where we are as a church. And you know that we've talked about the fact that there is a, there's a space constraint that we've been up against. And we're trying to continue to advance the gospel and reach folks in the community while ensuring that we're going to continue to have space for them when they come. Managing people while remaining committed to advancing the gospel. And so here's that church. They've got unmet needs. Their differences are being highlighted more than the gospel they've got volunteer problems and they've got people management problems and so what did they do the apostles respond here and what we learn from the apostles response doesn't teach us so much about conflict management per se and how to handle conflict but rather how to prevent it and how to preserve unity and health in the church 
And so what we see is both the importance of the church, the critical nature of the church, and when I say church, I mean the the full number, as it says here many times, the full number of the disciples and how they engage in the life of the church, the importance of the church, and secondly, the importance of healthy church polity. That's what I want to spend the rest of our time looking at as they bring this solution to the table. First of all, the importance of the church. We see that first highlighted just in the mere fact that we find this story recorded on the pages of Scripture. Think about it. Jesus gives this fledgling church in Jerusalem a mission. I want you to be my disciples in Jerusalem and all Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And they're fulfilling it. They're doing that. They're taking the gospel to the streets of Jerusalem. And by God's grace, thousands are being converted. And they're being thrown in jail, and they're being beaten, and they're being persecuted. And yet, God continues to bring fruitfulness to their ministry. The audacious mission of global evangelization is begun. It's happening. And then we have that that grand narrative of the global advance of the gospel in the book of Acts, interrupted by this little story, seemingly insignificant story, about some widows who were being neglected. But it's not insignificant because it's on the pages of Scripture. And it's here in part to remind us that that advancing the gospel, as we advance the gospel out there, we can't be ignorant of signs of unhealth in here. Because what happens in here can halt what happens out there. Or worse, distort what happens out there. But what is the church? It's not an organization. We know that. It's not a building. It's a people. It's a people regenerated by the Spirit of God, redeemed by the gospel of Jesus, the people of God gathered together. And this church here, this first church, faces a number of internal challenges, but they face them together. They face them together. They link arms with one another, and they lean in, and they face it together. Look back at the text and notice how the whole church was involved in addressing this problem. Verse 2 says that the 12 summoned the full number of the disciples. Not a team of them, not a committee of them, not a handful of them, but the whole church was summoned by the apostles to address this problem. In verse 3, this full number of disciples is exhorted by the apostles to pick out from among you. In in other words, they they intended that all of the members would participate in in literally voting and choosing those who would serve to fulfill this duty, this role. In verse 5, the plan, this plan that the apostles told them to execute, we're told that it pleased the whole gathering, all of them that were there, As the New American Standard translates that phrase, it pleased the whole congregation. They were all there together addressing this. And then in verse 6, we're told that these these candidates that they had vetted, they, meaning the whole gathering, the full number of disciples, set them before the apostles. They were all there. The whole gathered church did this together. It's almost as if Luke is going to great lengths here in this passage to highlight the corporate nature of the church and how they all participated in the decisions of the church and worked together to address problems and even conflict in the church. 
By the way, this is one of the biblical grounds that we have for church membership. After all, how do you ensure, how do you know that you have the full number of the disciples unless A, there is a number, and B, you know who is part of that number and who's not part of that number, right? Otherwise, you don't know that you have the full number of disciples gathered. In reality, you can't have the story of Acts chapter 6 without some means of determining who is a member of that gathering and who is not a member of that gathering. But most notably, we discern the importance of the church in this passage by seeing how quickly the apostles respond to it and hit the pause button until the church can be restored to full health. Again, the grand narrative of the book of Acts, advancing the gospel through the church to the nations. And if that's going to continue, it'll only happen through the church. Friends, the church is both God's means and God's end. It's his means and his end. She is the means by which God intends to redeem the elect from among the nations. And she is the end, her, God's end, in the sense that in the end, all of us who are members of New Branch Community Church will hand in our membership card to New Branch and we will get a new membership card to another church, the Church of the Redeemed of the Ages. Because in the end, we will all, all of the redeemed of all of the ages will be together and rule with God forever in the eternal state. And if that's going to happen, then unhealthiness in the church and conflict in the church and disunity and division in the church must be addressed and addressed quickly and completely. And so as we consider the importance of the church in advancing the gospel for the glory of God and the joy of all peoples, let us accept our responsibility as covenant members of this church to do our part to work together to preserve unity, to resolve conflict quickly and completely. How did the members of this church in Jerusalem do that in this situation? First of all, they prayerfully followed the leadership of the apostles. They prayerfully followed the leadership of the apostles. That is, they considered their plan, the plan to select these men and put them to this task, And we're told that after they prayerfully considered it, it pleased the whole gathering. And so they did it. This doesn't call for the church to blindly follow its elders. But to prayerfully consider the leadership of its elders. And unless they discern the spirit leading them otherwise and leading the church otherwise, not unless they have different preferences or opinions. But unless they discern the spirit of God leading them otherwise, they submit to and they follow the elders. I think this is part of what the writer of Hebrews was getting at in Hebrews 13, verse 17, when he wrote this. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Your elders, church, all of them, myself included, 
are humbled and overwhelmed by the thought that we will have to one day give an account to God for how we watched over your souls. And the writer of Hebrews exhorts the church, the people, to just bear that in mind when they consider whether or not to submit to them. So again, these disciples were not blindly following the apostles, but after prayerful consideration of their plan to address the problem in that church, they followed the leadership of the apostles. Secondly, what they do, they carefully vetted the candidates. The apostles told them in verse 3, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and full of wisdom. And so those that they ended up putting forward in front of the apostles, they had vetted through that filter and found them ultimately to be qualified in this regard. And then thirdly, they faithfully executed their responsibility to choose, to vote on who should serve in these tasks. So very practically then, if you're a member of this church, you, like the members of this Jerusalem church, should lean in to the life of the body of Christ here and do your part to engage in and participate in meaningful membership. That means attend the members' meetings and participate in what is going on, not just at the church, but in the church and engage in that. Don't be just uh, an observer. Be a participant in the life of the church. Pray for the church. Pray for the people. Pray for the ministry. Pray for the elders and the deacons and the, the ministry directors and leaders. And in particular right now, pray. Pray about this possible church multiplication that we're in the middle of. Pray for wisdom. Pray for discernment. Pray for unity. Pray that we don't stop advancing the gospel just because of a scarcity of facilities and resources to put them in. Attend these town hall meetings that we've been having. These family conversations where we've been having open and transparent conversations about this church multiplication, what it might mean, the consequences of it, and whether or not to do it. Engage in that conversation. Listen, even if you disagree with the plan. Please hear me on this. Disagreement is not disunity. Let me put it another way. Disagreement is not necessarily disunity, right? Disagreement done well helps a church arrive at a plan that is wise and workable. Disagreement done poorly ends up leading to division and disunity. Disagreement done poorly involves believing the worst about one another and distrusting one another and assigning motives to one another. And that will undoubtedly lead to division and disunity. But disagreement done well involves believing the best about one another and trusting one another's hearts and motives in this and loving one another to give one another the benefit of the doubt. And so it's being honest and forthright with our disagreements but it's also a commitment to never let those disagreements rob us of the blood-bought unity that we have in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel is what unites us. And no disagreement about the color of the carpet or a church planting strategy should ever dissolve that. And so we see the importance of the church highlighted here, but we also see the importance of healthy church polity highlighted here. 
Polity is a word that refers to how a church is led and how it's structured and how it functionally operates. As a Baptist church, we describe our polity at New Branch as elder-led, deacon-served, and congregation-fulfilled or congregation-ruled. And much of that we get from this very passage of Scripture, among others. Like most Bible scholars, we, we see the choosing of the seven to, to, to serve tables here as the precursor for and the establishment of the biblical office of deacon. And while we don't find the word for the office of deacon here, we do find other forms of the word for deacon all throughout this passage. And so we take this to be the establishment of what came to be known as the office of deacon. Furthermore, I agree with Bible scholars that say that what we have here in the apostles and how they interact with the early church correlates with what later came to be known as the biblical office of elder. Now, I'm not saying that elders are apostles. Apostles are something completely different. Uh, As we've talked about a number of times already in our study of the book of Acts, I believe that the office of elder was only for the first century. It was a temporary office for a temporary time. And now we don't need the office of elder because we have the office of apostle because we have the apostles teaching. We do need the the office of elder. (laughs) We need that. Mark that. Rewind. (laughs) Write that down. Let the minutes reflect. But we don't need the office of apostle anymore because we have the apostles' teaching. But what remains is the office of elder. So for the purpose of understanding what we hold to be the biblical church polity, we see an evident correlation between apostles and the biblical office of elder and these seven that are chosen and the biblical office of deacon. Now there's much that we could say about elders and deacons. We don't have time to say it. And so I'm going to limit what I do say primarily to the text in front of us this morning. And so from this text, what do elders do? What do deacons do? How do they relate to one another? And how does this help the church preserve unity and resolve conflict? This is not rocket science. But first, elders lead. Elders lead. What do they do in verse 2? They summon the full number of the disciples. They summon them. They initiate this. They call them up. They text them. They call the very first business meeting of the church. We need to have a family meeting, guys. That's leadership. That's leadership. And when they call them together, they have a plan. They they don't just come before or stand up in front of the full number of the disciples and say, guys, apparently there's a problem. What do you all want to do about it? Anybody raise your hand if you got an idea about how to solve a problem with the Hellenist widows? No, they don't do that. They, they, they think through this. They pray through this. They come up with a plan. They, they put this plan before the church. They show leadership. They're leading, but they're not ruling. They don't tell them who to choose. They said, pick out from among you, you guys. Pick out from among you. And by the way, neither do they tell the deacons these seven, how to serve tables. Their plan is for the church to select qualified men and then appoint them to this duty. What is this duty? It's the duty of the daily distribution of the food, the serving of the tables. 
But they don't tell them how to distribute it. They don't tell them what to distribute. They don't tell them when to distribute. And they don't even tell them to whom to distribute it. They let the deacons figure that out by themselves. And why do they come up with this plan in the first place? Because they say in verse 2, the second half of verse 2, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Now this doesn't mean that the apostles thought that serving tables was beneath them, that it was some kind of inferior job that they were too good for. Quite the contrary. The context here insinuates that they were very capable of serving tables themselves. And in fact, the context perhaps even insinuates that that's part of the problem of why they're here in the first place. And they're not very good at it. And they say that if they did that, they would be abrogating what they know to be their responsibility, which is the ministry of the word of God and prayer. So the elders are to lead, and they lead through the ministry of the word, which is through preaching and teaching, but also through shepherding and counseling, through the ministry of the word of God, and through the ministry of prayer. Elders could spend their time keeping financial records and paying bills and keeping up with maintenance on the facility and otherwise serving the physical and tangible needs of the body. The elders could do those things. And by the way, should be willing to do those things, right? I would say that someone who is unwilling to do the sorts of things that these deacons are called upon to do, that they're unwilling to do them because they think they're beneath them, they think they're too good for those sorts of things, are categorically unqualified to serve as elders. They should be willing to do this. But even though they could devote themselves to these tasks, they need to think long and hard as to whether or not they should because they need to consider how doing so may cause the ministry of the word of God and prayer to suffer. And so in order to prevent that, The office of deacon was established. So the elders lead and the deacons serve the body. Deacons serve. First, note here that they meet the necessary character qualifications. They they have a qualified character. Paul, in 1 Timothy 3, is later going to give us a more complete list of what those character qualifications are for deacon. But We're given here a short list in verse 3. The apostles tell the members, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit, and of wisdom. So first they need to have a good reputation. Again, Paul later is going to describe the kind of reputation that is a good reputation for a deacon. He will say one that is dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. Secondly, he's full of the spirit. So he's a Christian. He's a follower of Christ. Paul will later say that that deacons need to be able to um, hold to the ministry of the faith with a clear conscience. In other words, they have a self-evident walk with Jesus that is both genuine, authentic, and observable. And then thirdly, they need to be full of wisdom. They need wisdom. Why? Because they're going to be tasked with a problem in the church that is both complex and delicate and requires wisdom and discernment. So that's the who of who they are, but what do they do? Well, what they don't do is they, they don't lead. The elders lead, the deacons serve. 
And how, do we, how exactly do they serve? Well, they're meeting the internal challenges that that church was facing at that time. They, they went about to seek to meet the legitimate needs of the church. They sought about to address division and disunity in the body. They were helping to solve the volunteer problems of that church. And they're helping to manage the people while the elders sought to lead the people in the church to advance the mission. Deacons here are the furthest thing from the errand boys for the elders. Sometimes that's how they are thought of. They are not errand boys for the elders, as if the elders tell them exactly what to do and they do it. Instead, they are creative problem solvers. That's what these these deacons are. They're creative problem solvers. I would submit to you that the elders don't give them a job. They give them a problem. And then the the deacons use their wisdom and their discernment in order to help them solve that problem in the church. And because this specific problem in the early church here in Acts 6 was a problem of division and conflict, writer Jamie Dunlop further calls deacons the shock absorbers of the New Testament church. The shock absorbers. They need to be the peacemakers in the church. They need to be folks who have a radar for brewing division potential conflict and seek creative ways to address that before they become problems and then thirdly deacons were also ministry facilitators i don't think they did all the work i think they facilitated a lot of other people there in the first church in jerusalem to handle the distribution of food again what's the size of this church at this point conservative estimates are between eight thousand and fifteen thousand some estimates as high as twenty thousand at this point enormous Amazing growth. And how many deacons did they select? Seven. Don't you know that these seven got other people in the church to come alongside them and help them in the daily distribution of food? They recruited, they trained, they deployed other servants all throughout the church. There were others involved. The deacons were in charge. They made sure that it happened. But they were getting other people involved. And that's what we ask of the deacons here at New Branch. We don't ask them to do all the work. But we do ask them to help identify and invite and encourage other members of the church to come alongside them to help meet the needs of the church. So when they call you and they ask you to help with a church setup or with a church work day or help with some tangible things around the church or at an elderly member's home, receive their call, call them back, and if you can, agree to help, because that's a big part of how they serve our church, by helping to facilitate members to serve one another. I am personally so thankful for the 11 deacons that God has given to our church, many of whom I look out and see right now who are actively doing these very things in our church. We are blessed as a church to have deacons who are faithful to serve our body in that way. So we're elder-led, we're deacon-served, and then we're congregation-fulfilled. This first congregation fulfills their duty, as we said earlier, by first, first of all prayerfully submitting to the apostles, carefully the, vetting the candidates for deacon, and then faithfully choosing who should serve as a deacon. And by the way, notice whom they choose. Notice who they are. Verse 5, they chose 
Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. All seven are Greek names, presumably because they're outsiders who live outside of Palestine. All seven of these who are chosen to serve the church and address the problem at hand were, in fact, Hellenists. What does that mean? I think it means that the Hebrew-speaking believers voted with humility and grace. It means that they didn't vote their preference. Instead, they voted for what was best for the church. It means that they chose deacons from a place of putting the needs of others before their own needs, even before the needs of their own widows, perhaps. And I think that's a great example for the New Testament church of the day to follow. Why pause the action in the book of Acts? If you've been with us from the beginning, ever since Jesus handed that baton over in Acts chapter 1-8, it's been action and action and action. It's been gospel, bold gospel proclaiming, preaching, the Spirit adding to their number, them facing opposition, rejoicing that they are counted worthy to be to suffer for the name of Christ, and then continuing to go back out and do the same over and over and over and over again. Why pause that in this story? Why have that pause, that, that seemingly interruption in this story with a story about some hungry widows. Well, because it's not a story about hungry widows. It's a, it's a story about the church. The church is God's repository for the gospel. And the church is God's means for taking and advancing the gospel to the nations. And that is such, such an important task. That God wants to make sure that his chosen vehicle for delivering his gospel message to the nations is unified and strong and together. He wants to make sure that it's a healthy vehicle, a well-tuned vehicle, a vehicle that is ready to travel when it's called upon to do so. The gospel is God's means by which we become part of the church. We're saved by God's grace as we turn from our sins and trust in Jesus Christ and respond to the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's how we become a part of the church. And the gospel is the means by which we are sanctified to serve the church as elders, as deacons, as good church members. And to whatever degree we have failed to be good elders, good deacons, good church members, friends, the gospel is the means by which we are reminded that Jesus is sufficient for our failures. And that we don't stand before a holy God based on our ability to be a better elder or a better deacon or a better church member. 
but we stand before a holy God based solely on the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus on our behalf. And the gospel is the means by which sinners in this very room this morning can be saved from what they deserve. The gospel is the means by which if you are here and you recognize that you are completely lost, not just in this life but in the next, deserving of eternal judgment because of your rebellion against the king, the gospel is the means by which you can be rescued from that. By responding to that gospel in repentance of sin and faith in Jesus Christ. The gospel is so precious, so priceless and lovely. It deserves a means of delivery that is healthy and unified and strong. And that's what God calls the church to be. So let's accept our responsibility as fellow church members to participate in meaningful membership and to advance the pursuit of healthy church polity in order to advance the gospel while also preserving its unity. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for this pause in the action because it reminds us of how important the church is, not the building, not the organization, not the legal entity, not the group of leaders that lead her, but the body. She is your providential means of holding this gospel, living this gospel, and holding out this gospel to a lost and dying world. Father, thank you so much for this church. May we learn from this passage of Scripture how to pursue health and to address squabbles and differences and divisions biblically, quickly, and completely. Not just so that we'll have peace, not just so that we will enjoy our time together more, but so that we will be that healthy, healthy delivery mechanism through which you will choose to extend the gospel to our community and the world. Be so glorified in us, Father. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.